Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking to Galina Calio about a wide range of topics, including regenerative agriculture, the relationships between farmers, consumers, and non-human creatures, how scholars interested in doing engaged work around these kinds of issues can help each other, and more. A lot of the examples Galina uses are from Finland, where she works and lives. It's an interesting context for people who aren't that familiar with the country, but of course the lessons are universally applicable. I'm excited to jump into it. But first, though, let me read Galina's biography. Galina Kalio is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki Ruralia Institute. She holds a doctorate in science in economics and business administration from the Alto School of Business and was a Fulbright scholarship recipient, which supported her work at the University of California, Berkeley. And in fact, she was also kind enough to come visit UTRGV and give a talk here while on the Fulbright scholarship. Dr. Kalio works on the topics of alternative forms of organizing, self-reliant food economies, regenerative agriculture, and human-soil relations. She explores diverse epistemologies and methodologies for the study, analysis, and representation of non-symbolic, effectual, aesthetic, and ethical ways of knowing. She works at the crossroads of academia and activism by conducting research while also participating actively in local community-supported agriculture programs and in advocating for a biocentric paradigm shift in society. She's also a co-founder of the Untame Research Lab, which we'll talk about in this interview. So now... Here's my conversation with Galina Calio. Let me start by saying congratulations um, on uh, getting the, what's the name of the award? The Academy of Finland Award? Yeah. So uh, what was that for? Uh, so the Academy of Finland is, um, is a national institution which sure. funds uh, research of different uh, sort of kinds. So they have project funding and they have special calls for specific themes and their strategy comes from the government, so they're sort of, you know, aligned with the with the contemporary issues and policies and, and such, because they also receive their funding from the government, obviously. So there's that link, uh, and then um, they uh, fund scholars individually as well. And mm-hmm. what they do, they have two different uh, profiles. So they have young scholarship profile and then they have the senior scholarship profile so it's i think it's called academy fellow for the senior ones and then postdoctoral scholarship for the for the junior scholars and each year you actually apply for the funding already in september <laughs> and they have international panels so it takes them how many months, like seven, eight months almost yeah. to evaluate. Um, and for instance, in my panel, there were 10 people, 10 experts who evaluated my application. Um, did you get a chance to read some of their feedback? I did. I, I read it maybe five times because it was so overwhelmingly <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I was just so happy to receive such feedback because we rarely do receive feedback like that like that right Um, right? (laughs) in academia you get a lot of rejections and then you get a lot of or you or at best you get a lot of yes this is approved (laughs) like okay yeah yeah so can you describe uh what the project was that got funded yes of course so the project that got funded is um titled more than human economies in the era of ecological crisis Tracing human-soil relations, reciprocity, and livelihoods in practices of regenerative food reproduction. Um, so basically, um, what this project is about is to study and to sort of go into examining uh, by using ethnographic uh, research methods more than human economies, and in particular in the context of regenerative agriculture. So um, the the idea is, or kind of the, the argument behind this project is that that currently within uh, social sciences broadly, but, but particularly within my field, uh, critical organizational scholarship and, and food research as well, uh, we tend to theorize 
from a very sort of human-centered perspectives. And this is particularly true within sort of social theories and organizational theories, that as if organization is um, achieved only by humans, or as if economy is somehow detached from from the, the living world, from other living mm-hmm. beings, right? Mm, so the idea is to, to, to trace uh, different kinds of relationships that humans have with their soils and and other than human beings in the context of regenerative uh, agriculture and uh, research the relationship between um, between these human soil relations but also the livelihoods that people the possibilities and impossibilities to earn a livelihood in this in these practices Um, and this context is very important because i mean um, regenerative agriculture has sort of uh, become more popular recently uh, it it is um spoken about in many different contexts but it in practice it means many different things that might be very um contradictory in in some ways so i in this project proposal what i did was that i i also tried to critically examine the whole regenerative agricultural paradigm because I see that there is um, um, a tendency now to promote or to talk about that paradigm in terms of um, market logic. For instance, carbon farming is one of the, or carbon sequestration is one of the issues that is oftentimes uh, spoken about when we speak of regenerative agriculture. And then it, it, it usually or sometimes it's even reduced to these carbon sequestration methods and different kinds of um, concrete methods through which you can sequestrate more carbon in the soil and hence um, result in um, in profitable business opportunities and, and even carbon markets, include that as part of the carbon markets. Sure. Well, either either profitable on their own or profitable because uh, carbon sequestration is being subsidized by various governments and intergovernmental sorts of uh, organizations. But do you, so you see regenerative agriculture as something more than that? Yes, uh, I do. I, I do see it as something more than that because um, people with whom I have worked for the past uh, two years now, so what I do is that I actually um, do ethnography. I'm I'm working at these farms and I'm spending time with the farmers who engage in different types of regenerative agriculture um, initiatives and or they at least themselves identify <laughs> as being part of this regenerative movement. So hence, right. I'm kind of comfortable in saying that. Um, so... Um, and I also spend days at the farms just observing and when and if I can, I participate in the work of those farms. And um, I have encountered very different types of uh, farmers and farms that associate themselves with this regenerative work or regenerative farming, if you will. And these range from very small scale, um, diverse Um, organic farms to biodynamic farms to market gardens to permacultural market gardens to uh, forest gardens um, and even to um, to a large extent to different kinds of organic um, farms that specialize in for instance uh, only a, a few crops uh, or seed seed production for the for the larger international markets, for instance, uh, and everything in between. Um, and even in Finland, we, we have now this carbon action project where, um, where, where sort of regenerative agriculture is, is, is pushed towards the mainstream farming uh, field, where you sort of take some of the methods that improve the conditions of the soil or biodiversity uh, and you apply them and then you start calling this regenerative agriculture because there is no definite definition for it, right? So it's... It, <laughs> right. And you can always say it's a process, you know. It, a process needs to start from somewhere. But what I'm encountering is that there are very different farms who engage in this. Uh, and 
regenerative agriculture, I believe, has been appropriated very rapidly, more rapidly than sustainability, for instance, was or... Although that was, that was, that was, that was appropriated pretty fast. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but, um, but regenerative agriculture has been appropriated as well. I think very fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, um, when I was a graduate student at Michigan state university, I worked for a, um, sort of like an internal, uh, unit that when it was founded, just like maybe I think 15 years before I got there, its purpose was to try to promote sustainability, to get people to think about sustainability in their research mm. uh, because nobody was. And within a couple of years, it was so wildly successful that they didn't really know what else to do. Uh, so they had to kind of pivot. And instead, they tried to get people to actually think about sustainability because yeah. uh, they were very successful at getting people to use the word sustainability in their research. Uh, you know, so they would talk about sustainable, sustainably maximizing milk production in cattle through the use of hormones. Mm. Um, you know, so it's like, well, okay, I, <laughs> we we need to take a step back and think about what sustainability is. And so it became, um, you know, much more sort of theoretical, which is why they wanted a philosopher uh, on board, maybe. To get back to this regenerative agriculture thing, uh, if it's getting appropriated and if it means such a wide swath of different kinds of practices in farming and even gardening or commercial seed production, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Um, do you think it's still a useful term? Do you think it still points at something important? Or do you think that we should think uh, about it in different in, in a different way? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it's a useful term because it, it is, if we apply it um, in a way that we refer to ecology and the improvement of ecology and ecological processes, um, it it is a very powerful and useful term. However, I think that um, that the practitioners don't really care what term you use. <laughs> sure, right. I mean, at least those who are deep in the in the regenerative, they don't care if somebody appropriates that terminology. They just, you know, they do what they do, and they're still continuing doing what they do in very sort of um, deep understanding or deep relationship trying to form relationships with their surrounding um, plants and soils and uh, ecosystems. So I guess that that it remains to be seen how that concept evolves and whether um, big corporations, like I, I believe is happening now in the US uh, even more than, well, it's also happening in Finland actually, that big corporations are the ones who come and get engaged in financing regenerative agricultural research, for instance, or they they come and and, and make uh, different kinds of schemes or uh, cooperation with farmers. Uh, and I, I believe General Mills has done has done this as well. That you can tick the box how many of the practices you use in your sort of farming, and then you can get maybe paid a bit more for your produce and such. But I guess that. Um, one fear, actually, within the organic movement that I see is that um, that it's sort of everything that organic movement has achieved in terms of um, of raising awareness of the of the chemicals used in agriculture, um, the fertilizers and pesticides and, and such, is sort of undermined in a way in, or can be undermined through this regenerative agricultural movement, because then you focus on different techniques and necessarily it doesn't mean that you get rid of you know chemicals uh, that are damaging but, but you reduce them for instance a bit and and that's all um a matter of interpretation what's a bit and what is a bit less or you know so <laughs> right. there's that danger <laughs> yeah i think that you know you sort of um you know, there's different directions that other terms that are applied to farming for people that are concerned about the environment uh, have gone through different kinds of pitfalls, right? So uh, one direction that terms can go is organic. Uh, and at least in the US, you can tell me if this isn't true in an international context, I don't know that as well. Um, in the US, organic is now a legal term. So there's, it's enforced. Uh, if you say that your product is organic, and you don't meet a whole bunch of standards uh, that are uh, certified through 
farm visits and examinations of practices and interviews and all kinds of stuff, like really intense sorts of things compared to some of these other terms I'll talk about, uh, then you can't say that your product is organic. And if you do, uh, it's false advertising. You can get in legal trouble. So that's one kind of way to go. And one nice thing about that is that it has sort of an enforcement teeth, you know, like you can make itself happen. You can't just call yourself organic, but some organic farmers um, feel that, uh, of course, you know, the terms that are being used, the uh, the things that people have to meet aren't best practices, actually. They don't meet local needs, those sorts of things. And so like better than organic has become a term uh, sort of to represent that. So that's one direction you can go is a legal enforcement route, which has its own problems because politicians um, who often want to represent the interests of big government will, uh, you know, decide what counts as organic. The other way to go is to use something that isn't particularly uh, enforceable as a term like local or uh, bird friendly. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of these kinds of things that uh, get sort of thrown around there. When you pick something that doesn't have any particular teeth, like clean is another one that's becoming quite popular uh, or plant based, actually, um, then companies can just call themselves that. They're like, oh, great. We can't get organic certified because that's hard to do, but we can call ourselves all these other words because that's very easy to achieve um, because we can decide what it means. And so then there's a worry that the term becomes sort of, yeah, like you say, co-opted or watered down and doesn't mean anything. Um, so it's it's not really clear which of those strategies is better um, in terms of building a movement, but uh, you know there, there, there have been sorts of attempts to do these sorts of things in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask, because... Um, in the proposal for your title, there were a lot of really interesting terms there that I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with. We talked about regenerative agriculture, um, but another one that you mentioned there is the ecological crisis. So, what do you mean when you when you talk when you say there's an ecological crisis? Are you talking only about climate change or something more? Yeah, um, I guess it's very difficult to capture everything that is going on <laughs> at the moment, uh, and um, ecological crisis is. What I use, because in Finland we tend to use that terminology, in Finnish, I, I, I mean, um, the, the same. So, so I use that as well. But I use it also because I, th- I believe that climate change is very limiting. And it's also, it comes from the very, maybe even global north perspective, or at sure. least how it's approached and treated. Uh, an ecological crisis, to me, it captures broadly the biodiversity challenges, the, the ecological consciousness or the lack of, of ecological consciousness and, and all of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you consider all of the sorts of problems facing us ecologically or environmentally, from climate change to biodiversity, as you were saying, all sorts of you know desertification, a million kinds of things, do you think um, that there's a possibility of addressing those, at least mitigating them maybe, um, or adapting to them, I suppose, through our agricultural system? Like, does, do, does, it, does it seem in your work with these sorts of new springing up kinds of uh, alternative ways of farming and gardening that uh, there's a lot of promise there? Or do you think that sort of the traditional kind of industrial, I, I say traditional, it's only 50 years old, but you know what I mean? The mainstream uh, tr- uh, model of industrial intensive food production, through international capitalist kind of for-profit markets uh, is so entrenched that these kinds of little things don't pose a major challenge to it. Well, let me, let me. An easy, it's an easy question. It's, yeah, you know, exactly. Let me try to unfold <laughs> some of the, <laughs> some of the underlying sort of issues here in your question. So how I see it currently is that, um, that many of the actors who are farmers that produce food uh, for themselves and for um, different communities, let's say it like this, Um, they see themselves in many ways as working working to mitigate and adapt to uh, ecological crisis. And um, I believe that's, that's true in the sense that we need to, I mean, we need to eat <laughs> and food production is always, and it has always been in the center of human organization uh, sure. in different ways, right? So it's it's central to how we organize our societies. Currently, industrial food production um, 
which, as you said yourself, isn't the way we have farmed for, you know, thousands of years, um, or, or isn't the way we've organized our food system, um, is is damaging in, in many ways. And we know it. Uh, we know there's a lot of science backing this up. Um, but but these uh, regenerative agricultural sort of initiatives, as I said, that they have, and I still believe that they have a lot of potential because when climate is changing and when local conditions for farming are changing, uh, there is a crucial need to to try to um, adapt to those changes in in the way we farm. But it's not only related to how we farm, but it's related to the whole system of or economic system of 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 how we trade our food as well. And there it gets very tricky because it's it's very difficult to to try to um, understand the kinds of, for instance, power relations that are behind that current uh, system and how everything is is sort of um, uh, connected in many ways. What we tend to do is that we tend to blame sort of farmers or, or put the blame on the food production. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is that what I see is that many of the farmers are actually they're like in prison because they're indebted with their big facilities, with their big production units. They take enormous amounts of debt in order to, to be able to do that. And actually, I just found out, uh, which was quite, kind of shocking, um, that that in Finland, what, what, what happens is that actually the advisors for these farmers, they come from the industry sector. So farmers are actually depending on advisors who advise them how they should treat their farms and expand and and make their operations um, and plan their agriculture and and practice it, those people come from the industry sector, Um, at least partially, at least in the meat sector mainly. Yeah, I I mean, at least in the US, at least in the US meat production... Uh, operations are like the the least empowered, the most disempowered uh, farmers, because you know, as you're saying, they are required to sign um, exclusive contracts with particular distributors, and those distributors put onerous requirements on them that make them keep having to buy new and different kinds of equipment all the time, even if it isn't actually any better, just because that way they're continually taking on debt, and so they're sort of though they own farms, um, particularly like chicken production. Uh, in many ways, they're just kind of employees of these uh, large distributors like Tyson's or other kinds of companies here. Yeah. So I believe that partially this regenerative agriculture is also about taking, you know, it's about self-reliance in a way. It's about um, trying to re reorganize and reconfigure the whole f- uh, system of, of, of food chains. Um, most of these farms with whom I work, for instance, they... Um, they participate in community-supported agriculture initiatives, or they they have diverse ways of selling their produce, or exchanging their produce with other farms. <laughs> uh, that's also what happens. So it's kind of a diversified economy um, that uh, that they're engaging in, in many ways, and um, which is very different from the market kind of economy. And I believe that one of the challenges is that food is a commodity or it has been made a commodity through a complex uh, sort of uh, relations and historical trajectories that have taken place and um whereas food in many or originally it hasn't been a commodity it has been a part of the exchange systems of local exchange systems right of households of families of of local communities and they've had their own ways of ma- you know, making a living and subsistence and food has been part of those sort of communities. And um, But w- when it, it has been made a commodity, uh, it means that food is valued through the market mechanisms and it gives a very, I mean, it doesn't take much to figure out that the markets <laughs> don't work the, the way we are told that they're supposed to work. <laughs> and... Uh, and and that the externalities are not included in the prices, and that the, if the 
the understanding of efficiency has been produced to capture only uh, to capture only efficiency in terms of getting rid of manual labor or labor inputs and not efficient in terms of energy use or in terms of ecological um, uh, factors or in terms of actually there, there are studies that uh, that speak towards uh, that diversified production is also efficient in terms of produce but if efficiency i mean it's it's um it's a very um, narrow concept to be operating with if we really try to take seriously the the challenges that ecological crisis is is um posing at the moment sure food systems can have a huge impact on these on ecological the ecological crisis but uh it's not that farmers on their own can just shift because market forces don't really the way the market's set up now that doesn't really permit that but that we need to have some sort of like policy interventions well, definitely, yeah. I mean, that's what we've been trying to do now with the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, that's uh, sort of the EU-level policy, which affects all of us European countries or those who are part of the EU. And I'm not a policy researcher, so I, I couldn't um, speak to you in a very detailed way, but, but I've listened to the farmers who have tried to follow the, the ongoing negotiations and um, what's happening in behind the scenes, so to say. And they've been very concerned about what's happening. And it seems to me, it appears that there's a lot of lobbying going on from certain industry um, groups that are just reluctant to change the status quo. Because it means that, I mean, if we have, for instance, them um, how do you call this um, industrial um, production of like tractors and machines mm -hmm. and all this, the, the inputs that the farmers use. So, uh, so they don't want farmers to shift to, to more appropriate technology, for instance. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you can't sell a giant. You want them you to can't... be dependent on this intensive technology, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was what, what was actually introduced. It came from, from the States and it was introduced by, I believe, the Ford uh, with, you know, this idea of that, where, where can we get like more markets? Okay, let's, you know, introduce these tractors and intensive technology to farming. And it, it, it went along with the fertilizers and the chemical business and, and all of those. So it's it's actually very sort of complex to try to unfold all of these entwined uh, relations that exist but and also the power relations because for instance now what's happening within the EU policy is that they're trying to um or the legislation and the political subsidies that are given now to farmers um they are trying or some of the NGOs and and these regenerative farmers are trying to speak towards these subsidies being directed towards environmentally friendly uh, and regenerative practices, which is not happening uh, because the lobby is so strong from the other side. And the fact is that these lobbyists who include corporate actors, industry representatives and such, they are receiving salary for making this lobbying. <laughs> Right, right? Sure. And NGOs and everybody else, like farmers, they're doing it on their free time alongside their daily jobs that they get paid for. So there's already imbalance in that. Yeah, the classic problem is that people who are trying to make progressive social change are uh, having to do that in without any financial support or very little financial support. And yeah. people that are opposing them can... <laughs> I mean, it's a very well-paid job, you know, it attracts a lot of uh, intelligent people right out of college. So, yeah. um, you know, getting, so thinking about this idea about the economic and sort of political or policy mixed with economic system, um, one of the other terms that you used, which I thought was really interesting, is a more than human economy. Can you talk uh, about what you mean by that and how that sort of fits into this? Yeah, more than human economies, it comes from um, from this understanding that um, that there's a need to include more than humans. That is the 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 other other beings, other living beings in the equations or in the analysis of um, of of organizing the economy. And 
to be honest, I'm just starting this research, so I can't um, tell you um, in very sort of um, elaborate ways what it sure. is. But, but what I'm what I'm sort of uh, trying to to engage in myself is that in order to study more than human economies, that is, in order to understand how humans organize together with um, with uh, the the natural environment and uh, all 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 of the other factors. Um, that are not humans, uh, we also need to engage in different types of methodologies. That is that um, that currently if economy is sort of mainly um, described and researched through quantitative methods, right? Of course, there are several other uh, disciplines that study the economy, the economic anthropology and economic sociology and also uh, also, diverse economies, uh, including geographers and and, and and many other, you know, uh, in many other fields, the people study economy with um, diverse sort of methods. But what I'm sort of saying is that usually we we take into account human organization, but it's very difficult to include other than human beings into that equation. We can calculate the um, the amount of energy used, or the amount of um, uh, the amount of harvest uh, that we receive, or or the substances that we put into soil, or or we can try to identify some of the non-human actors that participate in food production. And we, but what is usually being done, and particularly in the light of climate change discussions, is that we try to um, monetize these for instance how much pollinators cost if we don't if we lose all the pollinators how much right. would that cost right or or some other factors how much can we sequestrate carbon uh, how much would that bring us income for instance and so so we tend to turn that into monetary terms and it's very difficult to value or evaluate in other ways how to value the work um, of of you know of the whole the surrounding complex relations that are or the aesthetical experiences or um, so I'm trying to sort of um, in my own research I'm trying to engage in in researching how people who work with the land directly how their relationships with that land and other than human beings are connected to their possibilities and impossibilities to earn a livelihood and so. In this context, more than human economies kind of goes towards broadening the understanding of the, what the economy is and how we sort of define it. And also the livelihoods are understood in broader terms than the paid income or the salary that you receive for your paid job. Yeah, there's sort of two uh, problems <laughs> in the sort of traditional way of doing it that it seems like you're pushing against. One is that... Uh, normal economic models or economic analyses, or even just the way that non-economists kind of think about the economy, um, tends to be reduced to money, right? So that's used as the only sort of way of understanding anything. Like when people talk about, uh, you know, it, and as you say, it makes it hard to measure other things, but they, they give it a shot through, through the lens of money. So they'll talk about the importance of polar bears by looking at the willingness of people to pay money to save polar bears. Mm. And, you know, there's been a, a whole host of research onto why that's not a great way to look at it. Uh, one of my favorite reasons uh, to bring out is that if you survey people and ask them how much they're willing to pay to save all polar bears, uh, you know, they might say, uh, you know, I would spend $12 a month to some organization to save all the polar bears in the world. And if you ask them how much they would spend to save five polar bears, they'll say, uh, you know, I might spend like $12 to, <laughs> so, so there's, there's no concept of scale. It's just sort of a, an idea of how, of how nice the idea sounds. Um, so that's one problem is reducing everything to money, as you say. But then the other problem is only see, is sort of being oriented only towards humans, right? Uh, what people often call an anthropocentric kind of orientation, where they're just thinking about people uh, being the things that do stuff. We are the ones that act. And then everything else in the natural world are sort of constraints or problems, pests uh, that spring up that we have to overcome or address in some way. Uh, and 
we only think about them in terms of their impact on us and our ability to sort of engage in the projects we want to engage in. And so addressing both of those, uh, I mean, sounds good. <laughs> it all sounds like a, like a challenge maybe. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, what I'm interested in is actually the, the, the relationships uh, of um, not only that, what more than humans or other than human beings um, sort of, or let me put it this way. Okay. So, so the idea of engaging more than humans is usually an idea that, um, that we tend to sort of humans need either need or need to get rid of. Right. So there's, it's, as you say, that it's from the, from the perspective of what do we need, but and and yet again those who theorize they are humans and if even if we try to engage in in diverse methodologies to capture this we we are still human beings who do the research right even if we in, uh, take into account multiple ways of knowing which i'm actually very interested in that 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 there are multiple ways of knowing not only uh, through uh, discourse or language or through measurements or through particular types of scientific methods, but also including, you know, taste and smell and sound and touch and all of these uh, other sort of elements into how, how do we know, how do we sort of produce knowledge about the relationships. But still, we are the ones who sort of tend to <laughs> tend to know. And, yeah. and, and um, so we can't get off out of our bodies in, in, in the sense. But what I'm actually interested in is that somehow to try to capture the reciprocal relationships between, and I think that's intrinsic to economics in general, particularly if we think of the anthropological tradition that sort of they, they, the, all, all of the different types of exchanges, they are intrinsically about different um reciprocal relationships of different character of different uh, nature right so what i'm interested in is to extend this idea of reciprocity and to try to understand it in broader context including the non-humans as well yeah i think i mean we'll see if i uh leave this next part in uh, or delete it i mean maybe it'll be interesting for people to hear um how i think through papers i don't know i'll, I'll see when i listen back but um I would love to get some resources from you and to talk more with you about this because uh, one of the things that I've written, and I think I sent it to you a while ago, uh, was on uh, different models of sustainability. And uh, writing with Zachary Piso, uh, we argued that the best way to think about sustainability that's kind of under-examined or under-sort of noticed by people is that people need to do the work of sustaining something. Mm. If something's to be sustained, then people have to sustain it. Um, and then with that as sort of the central idea, what the, what then are the constraints on sustainability? Well, it has to be sort of biophysically possible for people to sustain things. Uh, you know, if you think about it as a farm system, they have to produce enough calories to feed themselves in order to keep working at the farm. Um, it has to be socially sustainable. So, uh, you know, growing and producing heroin in the United States is very profitable, but isn't socially sustainable because we have a bunch of social constraints uh, to keep you from doing that. Uh, and then there need to be uh, reasons. People have to have reasons for doing those actions, right? So, you know, one of the examples we talk about are multi-generational projects uh, in medieval Europe to build cathedrals. In order to keep people working on those projects, projects that they will never see completed in their own lifetime, there have to be good reasons that they accept as good reasons uh, to keep working on it, right? Um, and so that was all great. I, I like that paper. But uh, one thing that I want to do, I want to revisit that and think through it from a less anthropocentric kind of model, because, you know, like like we were just saying, uh, the people in that, in that paper assumes that the people are humans, right? And so in that case, you could see the non-human world as constraints or resources, right? Like you're saying, things that we need or things that we need to exclude. Um, but I'd like to think through those, uh, those same sort of three ideas of biophysical possibility, social possibility, what does that look like? And reasons, when you think about it from non-human animals perspective and other things in the non-human world as actors in sustaining something. Because in order to sustain a lot of stuff, we need to have 
uh, cooperators. We need to cooperate with the non-human world. And presumably those other things also, it needs to be biophysically possible for them to do their part of the sustaining work. And socially, uh, which I need to think through exactly what I mean by that. But, you know, if you think about like um, uh, the behavior, the social behavior of non-human animals, um, you know, it needs to be socially possible for them to continue to do this. Uh, and they need to have reasons to do it. And what reasons, again, looks like for non-humans uh, is something I'm still thinking through. But it just seems to me that the model as it is, is concentrating too much just on humans and actually, almost nothing is sustainable just by human action. You need you need the cooperation of lots of other parts of the world. So, I'd be really interested uh, to talk to you about this more in the future, and maybe get some readings from you that I can uh, that I can look into. Yeah, sure. So, another thing that you have worked on in the past, um, and I think you're continuing to work on, uh, that I think is a neat phrase that I'd like to unpack with you is uh, work that you've done on what you call invisible work. In regenerative agriculture. Can you explain what you mean by invisible work? Yes, um, gladly. So uh, this all started with with my sort of when I did my PhD, I, I did it on food collectives and community supported agriculture and food co-ops. Mm -hmm. And I remember I've heard your very good presentations on that. <laughs> yeah, we met, <laughs> we met during those times. Uh, yes. Right. So, um, so food collectives uh, are groups of households who uh, organize themselves in order to collectively procure food from various farmers. And the idea there is that that they form sort of more or less permanent relationships. So it's not a pop-up market or it's not a farmer's market, but it's it's sort of um, these, um, these exchange relations that are durable or they tend to be um, extended throughout years with same farmers. And so I, I participated in them by myself and um, and also sort of uh, studied them ethnographically in Finland. And um, I was also a founding member of the first community supported agriculture here in, in, in Finland, which now um, celebrates its 10th anniversary, actually, this year. <laughs> well, so, congratulations, um, although that, yeah. that's kind of late in the history of CSAs. It took a little while to get over to Finland. I know, I know. We're late in everything. Everything arrives here <laughs> somehow very late. It's it's across the ocean. It's a long way. So, sure. <laughs> yeah. But so, so and, and during those times, I sort of encountered a lot of work that people did in order to maintain and sustain and organize these collectives that was not it it couldn't be and it was not given direct monetary value and it's something that we talked about earlier as well and i got interested in that because um because the the value of food in the sense was not only the value of price and i wrote a i, I wrote a paper about this a carrot isn't a carrot isn't a carrot sort of to trying to figure out what are the ways of valuing and i ended up sort of arguing that value is not or it cannot be captured in terms of a priori understandings or value frames, uh, nor can it be captured through this idea of, of, of rankings or price, because it's not static. It's something that is continuously unfolding and changing through those interactions that people engage in. And labor and work is very uh, much in those, um, in those value production processes. And somehow... It, it sort of entangles with the value of, of the food because um, people, when they end up participating in it, they, they tend to value it more as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I started to call this work that I encountered that people were doing, not only those people who organized food collectives, but also those farmers who were sort of doing all that work in order to produce those, um, those products. Um, I started to call it invisible work because it was not visible and it was not certainly um, many times uh, included in the price. And I wanted to know and learn more about it. And then I actually realized that that much of the invisible work that is being done is is not being done by humans, but it's done by um, by other other beings. Um, so at farms, currently, I have identified that invisible workers are, for instance, those that come 
uh, as volunteers through uh, woofer uh, system or uh, trainees and, and people who come without sort of um, paid they're not paid for their work, but they come and live at the farm and there's an exchange going on through that they give their labor and then they receive the food and the accommodation and such. Um, that's that's one point of invisible work. There's also the neighboring community that participates through like volunteering um, um, in, in at farms at different mm-hmm. instances. Uh, and then there are all the animals and 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 others that the soil organisms and the pollinators and the plants themselves and and all the sort of the 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 living community around it that do the work um, that ends up actually then many times being sold through the the concrete harvest that is then taken out of the soil or the animals right yeah and that's that's yeah I think that's fascinating. Have you published on that in English? Is that one of the papers that you sent to me? I haven't. I haven't published. I, I'm in the process of writing a paper about it, but I haven't. I should probably write a blog. Yeah. I, ha- I have been thinking about it because it needs to get out. <laughs> and publishing a paper is slow. At least hurry up and publish it so that I can cite you. I would, <laughs> yeah. I would appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, that there's this, um, that we don't notice how dependent we are. And I mean, it's... it. People try to capture it, you know, with the framework of sustainability that has been in my head recently, you know, like even the original first time somebody tried to define sustainability with that three-part model of uh, something being economically sustainable and socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable, um, that was uh, a terrible definition in many ways. It doesn't work for lots of things. But what it was created for originally was to think about farms. Are these farms going to continue into future generations, you know, how can we keep farmers going? And with if that's the lens, then actually it's not a bad definition. It just doesn't work for other things. Because um, as they even said, like in the very original publishings on this, you know, decades ago now, um, you know, for a farm to be sustainable, um, it needs to make enough money that the people doing it can continue to do it. If they live in a, you know, we work in a market, um, but they defined, uh, they defined uh, economically sustainable only as people can continue to get inputs that they need. So it wouldn't even have to be a, you know, a market-based sort of transaction. Uh, And it needs to be socially sustainable in the sense that farms are very dependent on the neighboring community, as you're saying, on the the towns nearby, Um, both in the sense of, uh, you know, they need to be able to go there and buy things at the store that they can't produce themselves. But also uh, if this, if the surrounding areas don't support, um, farmers and celebrate farmers, then it's more unlikely for uh, the next generation to want to be farmers, right? They want to go to the city and have some other kind of job um, if those other jobs are more rewarded in various ways socially. And then environmentally sustainable is that farms are really dependent on, you know, any number of, uh, I would say, non-human actors. But originally they were saying things, environmental constraints like, um, you know, soil erosion, water, non-human animals, um, any number of things that are required in order to do the work of farming. And so if you don't have all of those things sort of holding the farm up, then the farm falls apart, right? It needs to be held in society, in the environment, uh, and people need to be able to continue like sort of reproducing that work, getting the inputs that they need. And so I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I just think that, uh, even though that's how it was created and everybody said that was a good idea, we kind of forgot about the second two and we just think about the economic sustainability uh, quite frequently. Yeah, but I think there's a, um, there's a, a, a very sort of big, um, how would I put it, danger in using that triple bottom line yeah. framework, if you will, because, um, and I myself has have started to speak about strong and weak sustainability which is not a new you know terminology or concept and it it comes from this uh, ecological economics but also from from the deep ecology understanding mm-hmm. yep and uh, the idea is that that in in the weak sustainability we actually have those three circles that somehow align in the center and and it needs to be optimized w- within all those three spheres Whereas the strong sustainability departs from that the outer circle is the ecology and everything is subordinated to that. 
And within that ecology, then the, the social sphere operates. Yeah. And then, of course, whom do we include in the social sphere is a good question. And then, and then within that social sphere, um, or social cultural sphere, if you will, um, economy exists. And of course, all of these are subject to def- different kinds of definitions of what is ecology and what is um, society and what is economy. But the idea of this framework is to put a hierarchical sort of relationship between these uh, different spheres. Yeah. And I think it's very, I think it's very real in the sense it's more real than the than the other sort of image because. Th- the the fact is that we operate within the boundaries of ecology right. none of us as like human beings we we cannot create energy from nothing right yeah exactly it we we, we can't like just think about energy and it appears <laughs> so, so there are a lot of physical boundaries yeah that's why i don't think uh, like i was saying i think it's a really dangerous model when you take it out of its original context of just asking will this particular farm be taken over by the next generation of farmers because once you and i mean it became very popular people still talk about it god knows everywhere if you google sustainability (laughs) this is the the dominant definition but it doesn't make sense uh at large scales because when you stop to think about it um what is the economy such that it is different than the society, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you talk about something being socially sustainable and economically sustainable, but wait, wait a minute. Surely the economy is created by the interaction of society and the natural world. So like, why is it its own thing? Why is it its, uh, why, why does it get its own pillar? And uh, yeah, and as you say, uh, it is just the case that we have to live in a an ecological situation or we're dead. And if we don't have a very friendly, welcoming, helpful ecosystem to live in, we can't go around creating a society of any kind. So the, that hierarchical sort of thing you're pointing at isn't isn't like a values hierarchy. It isn't that you like nature more than you like society and you like society more than you like economics. It's like literally an ontological like claim about how the world is, about which ones are more basic than other ones. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So... um. I don't have you for too much longer, so I want to I want to talk about this uh, the new research lab that you're starting up, uh, that you just uh, <laughs> though currently your your website is only in Finnish, which means I didn't get a whole lot out of visiting it. I'll, I'll use Google Translate and revisit it. Uh, but can you can you talk about um, this research lab and what sort of projects you're working on? Yes, um, yeah, we just launched it actually a couple of days ago, and uh, it's been a, a long process of communicating with uh, with colleagues of mine um, about the challenges that we have faced while being in academia. And so the, the sort of the seed for this research, untame research lab was, um, was planted maybe a few years ago. I, I always dreamt of sort of um, doing research truly collectively and thinking together and and working together but unfortunately the the way the academia is currently organized doesn't really allow that in terms of that it's very competitive and um mm. and we are uh what stenger isabel stenger's calls in, in inside the knowledge economy if you will sure. <laughs> we're sort of reproducing some of the paradigms we're trying to actually uh, critically examine right. <laughs> at the same time while being in academia by participating in in publishing in high impact journals that are then ranked based on particular you know it's very difficult to change from the inside um alone right. i mean alone as an individual scholar and when you're a phd student it's impossible because you just need to go you're only learning and uh, and it's um so it's very hard uh, and I've always been very interested in knowledge production, sort of in epistemological uh, understanding and in researching different epistemologies and, and sort of different ways of knowing. And this is what research is actually about. We sort of, through different methods, we produce knowledge, but we produce different types of knowledges, right? Um, and And so this Untamed Research Lab came about, on the one hand, it was um, 
the frame is the ecological crisis that we're living in. And we're all researchers who are very concerned about the current situation. And, um, and we are scholars who do not believe that 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 sufficiently is being made uh, by the by the by different societies, both internationally and nationally, in order to take seriously the current ecological crisis and everything that comes with it. So we are sort of interested in both in our research and in our personal lives to to advancing those kinds of paradigms that are not contributing to the worst, at least worsening the the ecological um, crisis, but but maybe to mitigating and adapting to it. So we're studying those different kinds of paradigms where scholars studying, for instance, uh, like myself, regenerative agriculture, um, invisible work, uh, diverse economies, different ways of organizing the food economies, uh, also degrowth and post-growth work and, and um, sort of things like that. Uh, so we're interested in, in paradigm shift, both um, in terms of uh, researching it, but also making it, um, advancing it in our sort of academic lives as well. So we want to also support other academics who are engaging in this um, paradigm shifting work, if you will, that feel that they are alone and that they're trying to uh, change or move or shake paradigms, but they cannot do it because they are stuck in the academic um, uh, tenures uh, or publishing or or just not getting enough support for that. So our research collective is has been founded because of the need to advance strong sustainability. Uh, and engage in examining how knowledge is produced uh, in these current areas, uh, times, and also to make a, to start building a network of people who are engaging in this similar kind of work. That's fascinating. Our framework is actually strong sustainability and weak ontology. So <laughs> this is this is the the. The box that we 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 operate in. <laughs> sure, and so then you're trying to build connections between researchers to like think about future collaborations. Yes, we're building uh, connections. Um, we're uh, currently, for instance, organizing a paradigm uh, reading circle around um, different uh, readings that um, have to do with like paradigm shifts and 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 different kinds of uh, critical sort of understandings of the current paradigms. Then we um, we just started, so we're, we're planning to sort of organize panel discussions around the topic to bring together different scholars around like current and topical um, uh, subjects. Um, and it's an interdisciplinary. We have um, people from philosophy. We have a person from um from ecology or biodiversity studies and uh, and ourselves from the, the background in in critical organization studies and diverse economies and um so the idea is also to to sort of to to bring people from different backgrounds to to try to think what is in their own field what is uh, what are the uh, the dominant paradigms and um, what kind of understandings exist what are the taking for granted assumptions and underlying sort of understandings of knowledge production and try to um, engage with that, with, with people who are already thinking about these things in more critical terms. That's great. And uh, I'll put the link to that <clears throat> website in the show notes. Uh, so if people are interested, uh, I'd encourage them to go take a look at that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated this conversation. Yeah. Um, I didn't even get to some of the things I want to talk to you about, about alternative ways of knowing and how that works with food. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I actually, I myself wanted to just mention about the concrete example of the paradigm shift in the food, in the food sector. And I think, I believe this is an important, um, important thing to mention, which is rarely talked about. Yeah. But in my proposal, I wrote regenerative food reproduction and not regenerative agriculture. And I, I believe this is a very important sort of um, thing because this 
there is an underlying understanding of a paradigm, of different paradigms within the regenerative and food production in general, or food um, field in general. Because how agriculture and, and food production is currently organized, it's organized around production of food, right? So we, mm-hmm. um, we sow and then we harvest. We grow and harvest it in a way. And that harvest is based on producing food. But, and then reproduction, which means that reproduction of seeds, for instance, it's also in the, it's organized in the way the production is organized. We produce seeds. But what the, some of these people do within the regenerative agriculture, and I was talking about this earlier, that, that there are so many different sort of understandings and practices underlying it. And this is what interests me very much. People who work in for, food forests or for, forest gardens or who, who do uh, seed saving activities, um, what they actually do is that they engage with the reproductive cycles of the plants and the surrounding sort of ecology, which is very different approach from the production mode, Mm -hmm. because then you engage with with what the plants want to do, basically. They want to reproduce, and you allow that to happen. So so you engage with perennial uh, vegetables and perennial crops, um, and you save seeds, and you engage with the genes uh, diversity and, and the biodiversity in very deep ways and then you can do the adaptation work of plants and you can truly sort of get into the deep ways of knowing and into these relationships that I was talking about earlier so I think this is something that we um, that that is still very difficult to understand and it's a it seems like a utopia that food our food system cannot be organized around reproduction and yet it has always been like, or it has previously been like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if it's not extractive, uh, sort of short-term, short-time horizon agriculture, then you have to think about things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, do you think that the future, like how optimistic are you about the future of people taking this on board uh, in our food systems and in farming? Uh, do you think it's going to be quite a struggle or do you think that this is sort of you're already seeing this sort of trend uh, in people thinking more about reproduction and regeneration in their agricultural practices? Well, I think that the new generations that mm, that are now sort of entering the schools or finishing universities or what I see is that there is a lot of people who really want to go and work with the soils, with the land, back to the land movement, I, I think is <laughs> is um, partially at least growing. Um, the challenge is that where to get the land and how much it costs and, and all, all of these topics that we don't <laughs> have time to go into. But right. um, I mean, I see a lot of energy in that. And I see a lot of consciousness being amongst the new generations or the younger generations. Because if we think of the Farmers, for instance, in Finland, their uh, their middle age is around, I believe, fifty five or sixty years. Oh, so they're not that young anymore. They're at some point they need to uh, they need to make a generation shift in their farms. Yeah, and to my understanding, not many people want that kind of uh, farming. So in that sense, there is hope, um, and yet. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure whether um, whether that's an easy shift to make because because it it relates to so many structural challenges that that we are facing. So the structural change doesn't go hand in hand with these hopeful people who sort of want to start doing things differently. So it remains to be seen how people, if they, if people can earn their livelihood uh, while at the same time engaging in this and maybe changing the, the system with diversifying their ways of, you know, earning income partially from somewhere else and not only um, through farming, I believe then th- th- there can be some kind of a, a change happening that you're not totally dependent on, on the farm income. That's interesting. So having them be sort of more integrated into uh, 
into the larger sort of community rather than just being only a farmer and maybe maybe smaller scale um, and part time work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to say thank you again so much for participating in this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Yeah, no problem. And I'll, I, well, I'm going to have to grab you back on to talk about the other things we didn't get to. Definitely. Yeah. That was my conversation with Galina Calio. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Galina's Untamed Research Lab if you'd like to check it out and get connected. Please subscribe, rate the show, and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. I'd really appreciate it because it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, you can drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Thank you.